Hey, Cole, are you ready to take a trip to the English countryside with me today? This is a trick question because I would love to go to the English countryside, but it's not going to be what I want it to be. I don't know. It might be because today we're talking about a British Gothic horror story from the 70s, which at the time critics described as watchable. <laughs> It was the the double-headed dildo bird voice that got me. <laughs> All right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. Sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And sometimes we're listenable. <laughs> That's um not just a joke. That was when I looked up the reviews for this movie, it was like very like lukewarm received. And literally, it was hailed as being watchable. <laughs> so, that's something. Jesus. I mean, it's better than being unwatchable. Is it? Because I feel like unwatchable people, pretentious people are like, oh my God, it's just so elevated. I love it so much. And then you get like a small cult following. But watchable is just like, nah. True. I mean... There are, I would classify very few movies as unwatchable. Although, that being said, I was real quick going to do a different movie this week. And spoiler, not spoiler, I was going to do the movie Velocipaster because it sounds fantastic. It it's sounds so great. Literally a hot priest who turns into a velociraptor and kills people. That movie was unwatchable and not in a good way. I literally got about 20 to 30 minutes into it and could not do it anymore. It's supposed to be camp funny and it was not funny. I didn't giggle a single time. And it wasn't even so bad I could make fun of. I was literally just kind of like, one, if this guy doesn't get naked or make like an actual joke, I have to stop watching this movie. And neither of those things happened. So I stopped. People are going to think we're such pervs. All the time we're just like, does he get naked? What? I'm okay with nudity. I'm very pro-human body. Everyone should get naked. In the words of our great muse, we're all going to die someday, and you want to look hot while doing it. Gay rights. <laughs> so, okay. Anyways. So, I didn't do Velocipaster, because that movie is trash. Sorry if you like it. Watch something better. So, instead, I did another movie that was less trash. Actually, I didn't... I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it a little bit. Was it Compost? Compost, yes. So, Okay. I did a movie from 1973. I do like the 70s. I listen to a lot of their music, even though I was not alive in them, just so everyone knows, even though Cole talks about how old I am constantly. But the movie is called, And Now the Screaming Starts. So they weren't the best at making names for movies in the 70s. I mean, to me, And Now the Screaming Starts sounds like a comedy similar to the Clue movie. Oh my god, I love Clue. That was oh one of my god. favorite movies when I was a kid. That movie is so good. It's so fucking good. My mom bought that movie for me when I was really young because we had rented it. This is when you still like rented movies from Blockbuster. And I was like obsessed with it. And it's not really like violent, violent. So she bought me a copy of it. I watched that movie so much. I have it on DVD. I'm not even sure what it was I liked about it so much, but I was like obsessed. The fabulous clothes, the campy comedy. I did probably like all that. 
And then we also played the board game a lot, too, so I'm sure in my head I associated that with that. The flames from this flames from the side of my face. <laughs> I use that gif all the time. <laughs> I have anger management issues. Anyway. God. So, okay, this movie, though, and now the screaming starts. As I said before, it's a British gothic horror. It's directed by Roy Ward Baker. The screenplay was written, I guess it's more adapted, by Roger Marshall. It's based off of a 1970 novella called Fengriffin, which is by a writer named David Case. I didn't really like look up that much about the novel, but I do know that it actually seems to have an okay score on Goodreads. So, maybe it's good. I don't know. Okay. Oh, also, side note, the house that they used to film this in is obviously a real house, and it's now a four-star hotel that you can stay in. See, now you have my attention. <laughs> we could watch it, and then we can go stay in the hotel. And actually, when I knew this when I was watching it, so the whole time I'm like, this would be kind of a fun place to stay in. It is, I mean, it's literally just like an English estate. Yes. So. I just right. want to sit by the window and gaze out over the moors while in it. Yes. However, in the movie, it's a cursed estate because this is a gothic horror. Oh, my gosh. If there is not a diaphanous nightgown in this movie, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that I will be disappointed. I mean, to be honest, the main character, her name is Catherine. She's played by Stephanie. Of Be- course, her name is Catherine. <laughs> Keep going. She's played by Stephanie Beecham. And um, no relation to Claire Beecham. But uh, she she is like titty so plentiful throughout most of this movie. Yeah. And they do have her in a lot of nightgowns because a lot of times she's walking around. And actually, it's really funny, too, because sometimes, you know, they do like the dark scenes at night. Mm-hmm. And so she grabs the candles because she has to walk through the manor with the candles. Yes. But the candles that she grabs are clear. Like, you know, they they made like special like candle holders to do that. Yeah. She's not grabbing those. She's grabbing like fucking like full candelabros with like crystals dangling off of them because it's the 70s. Oh, so my God. I'm everything so is super glamorous. Right. I am already <laughs> living for this movie. Oh, and her hair is. Her hair is also amazing in this whole movie. It's like these like thick curls and they're always done up. There's not a single scene in the movie where they're not done up. The like giant ringlets. Yes. yes. Like super giant ringlets and it's like auburn hair. I'm so excited. Yeah. There's a lot. So excited. Honestly, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between her nightgowns and like her like dresses because she's always just like her boobs are up and it's all kind of like flowy because it's very the men's clothes looks kind of period appropriate because it takes place in. 1795. All right, I'm on board. Okay, so the men's clothes look pretty period appropriate, but the women's clothes look a little bit like a 70s interpretation of these this time period because it's a little more sexy and a little more like, I don't know, like flowy. And I don't know necessarily that the clothes were flowy back then. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of corset action, but maybe corsets were a different time. So that's like sort of close-ish to Regency. You said 1790? 1795. Oh, that's just the beginning of the Regency period. That was a lot of like fitted bust and then like just below the bust line, empire waist flowy. Oh, that's like exactly what they were wearing. Yeah. So I guess it was pretty because the men in it look just like... like um Bridgerton? Bridgerton, yes. Yeah, Bridgerton's also Regency. Okay. So I guess it was pretty... God, that period honestly... Like, uh, Regency in the 70s have a lot in common. The female fashions, not the men. By the way, gentle listener, I've mentioned in, like, one or two episodes, in case you have forgotten, um, historical romances are my one true 
fictional love. Yeah. I'm getting better with them. I like them more now. But yeah, so she, Catherine looks great and she wears all her like super busty stuff. So, okay, let's get to the movie. Opens up with a nice English countryside carriage ride. And Catherine is sort of doing a narration. She doesn't narrate the whole movie. She only talks in the beginning of it. And she basically sets the stage, talks about how it's 1795, just so we know. And that she's returning to a place where her days were filled with fear and her nights filled with horror. And it's done in this like 70s, like really like wispy tone. I was kind of like there for it, honestly. So excited. So Catherine and Charles arrive at the home. Charles is Charles Van Griffin, so it's his family's estate. Catherine is marrying Charles Van Griffin, which happens very quickly. And so they get to the estate. She's never been. And there's all these like portraits of the Van Griffin men. And Catherine is like looking at him and he, Charles is like telling them, like telling her who everyone is. And then there's one that's like a super creeper face portrait. And Charles is like, that's Sir Henry Van Griffin, who I think is his grandfather. And the picture is giving Catherine like super creeper face. So she's staring at it and staring at it and staring at it. And then all of a sudden a bloody hand breaks out of the picture, like at her face and she screams. And then like Charles comes running and there's nothing there. And this is like the first like five minutes of the movie. Hysteria. It's hysteria. Yeah. Her womb is just a wandering about her body. There is, to be honest, there is a little bit of that later on. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Yeah. So, okay. So very quickly, it's like the wedding scene. They Part of the issue with this movie is like the scenes are a little bit disjointed. Like they don't really focus on plot or character development. It's almost more... Watching it, I almost got the impression more of like a play. It's like scene, 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 scene. And then you just you just know what the story is in your head. But yeah. there's not like a flowing story to it. Yeah. Okay. So Charles and Catherine get married. Charles is like carrying Catherine with her big gigantic wedding dress like up the stairs into her separate bedroom. and But they're usually connected by a door. Yeah. I think I don't remember if his is connected or like very close, but it is very close. And as he's carrying her up the bedroom, we see a severed hand like crawling across the floor. Yes. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was kind of creepy. To be honest, the beginning of this movie, I was like, this is really creepy. I don't know why people didn't like this more. And then I watched the next hour of it and I was like, oh, because it's not bad, but most of the creep factor happens in the beginning and then a little bit at the end. But there's still some other creepy stuff. I'll get to it in a second. So they settle into their separate bedrooms. And Catherine is quickly attacked. Again, this is the very, very start of the movie. Quickly attacked as a hand reaches out from nowhere, covers her mouth. And then you see an, an, an arm with a severed wrist. That's like, you can tell that it's like the person has one hand and not another. And she's attacked and she eventually like wrestles free and she screams. Charles comes running, but there's nobody there. Catherine looks upset. Her hair still looks amazing. But she's like not having a good time. So they calm her down. And she decides that she's, like, not super into Van Griffin because, like, she also keeps seeing visions of this guy with his eyes gouged out. And then she's staring at that picture again, and the picture starts to bleed. And she's like, this place is not okay. But nobody takes her seriously, right? Of course not, because she's a woman. Yeah. So she gets really upset, and she runs out of the house, and she finds, like, a small cemetery on the property. And she goes to investigate, and she finds Sir Henry's grave, and then meets this creepy woodsman 
wood or woodsman woodcutter character guy he'll come into play actually he's a main figure but he's really weird i love this so much keep going (laughs) so at this point Catherine is like what is going on at this place but nobody will tell her and like everybody is being like really crazy like she has like a i guess a lady's maid it's a maid like it's not her personal attendant maid but there's a maid that like cleans her room and stuff like that yeah and she's like trying to ask the maid for answers and, and everyone's like ignoring her. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's totally normal here. So she then very quickly learns that she is pregnant, but she is also really pissy because nobody will tell her at all like what's happening and stuff still like weird stuff keeps happening, right? Then at one point, she's like tries to confront her lady's maid and is like, I need you to tell me what what's going on, what's going on. And the maid is like, no, I really can't. Sorry. But she kind of insinuates that there is something. So then the next scene, we get her maid winning literally the bad acting challenge of the year when she fakes being choked by a spectral hand and flings herself down the stairs to her death. That is commitment to keeping your secrets. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Commitment. So then the next day, they tell Catherine that the maid must have tripped down the stairs and Catherine gives them the biggest, are you fucking kidding me look I think I've ever seen. And it was so fantastic that I've actually screenshotted it so I can show you it. Send it to me. Send it to me now. Oh. My God. That's literally her face when they're like, oh yeah, she must have tripped and fell down the stairs. Like, she is literally having none of that. I have made that face at work a lot. Also, you get a little bit of a taste of kind of what she's wearing. I think that's one of her night outfits. I'm living for the bonnet. So she's just like, get out, of, get out of my face with that bullshit. Then Catherine's Aunt Edith, who had accompanied her for her wedding to like, I don't know, because I guess families did that kind of shit back then, is like, I think we need to like leave and go back to London. And Catherine is like, you want me to leave my husband? And the aunt's like, yeah, we should just get out of here. Yeah, girl. So then the aunt is killed as well, spectrally choked by a a severed hand. And two deaths seems to be the final straw for Catherine because she's like, for fuck's sake, can somebody just tell me what the fuck is going on? And Charles is like, "Mm, no, sorry, too soon. So so then one night Catherine gets thrown down the stairs and Charles is like, oh my God, is the baby okay? And the doctor's like, don't worry, the baby is fine. And then Charles is like, is Catherine okay? And the doctor is like, she has a couple bruises. And he's like, no, I mean, like, is her mind okay? Oh, boy. So it's like, okay. At this point, Catherine starts to kind of lose a little bit. Like, she sees the vision of the guy with the gouged out eyes. And at first, she starts to kind of get scared. And then she literally just starts maniacally laughing. So she's going full on psycho. Good for her. I mean, what are you, you going to do? Like, you're trapped in this situation. Nobody's believing you or helping you. You know something's going on, but nobody will tell you. And even at that point, instead of telling Catherine what's going on, Charles just continues to, like, gaslight her and calls in a psychiatrist to figure out why she is so, quote, unhappy with her situation. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. So then the, the psychiatrist at that point starts to ask whether are there are any stories or legends about Fen Griffin. And this other doctor, the doctor who had, like, examined Catherine for her pregnancy, actually, he's like... No, of course not. And then the psychiatrist is like, well, obviously there is, or you wouldn't have denied it that quickly. 
And so then this, the doctor is like, okay, I'll tell you. But then when the doctor starts to tell the tale, he starts to be like, there was a woodcutter. And then all of a sudden the doctor chokes and dies in his chair. Bum, bum, bum. It was the woodcutter in the doctor's office with hands. Yes. So then Charles decides to tell the psychiatrist the story and he doesn't get killed while telling it. So then we get a flashback and we learn what the curse of Fen Griffin is. So what happened was Sir Henry had turned Fen Griffin into a house of debauchery back in the day where they had like literally we have a flashback of them having like drinking competitions where they're like chugging down these giant things of beer and whoever drank it the fastest got to like have one of the women at the party which is really problematic women aren't objects also boring well that's not the whole part of the curse that's just setting a stage (laughs) well no i just like i've i'm a librarian and i've had more debaucherous nights than that yeah well you know it's weird because there is like literal zero nudity like not even a nipple to be seen in this, which is kind of odd. But I guess for the time... I mean, the 70s were very sexually free, but I don't think film-wise they were. So. Yeah. Okay, so then we also learned that the woodcutter had been married on that same day that we're looking at. And they he's, he's part of the outdoor servants. And so he lives in, like, a little house off to the side. Which was actually really funny because at one point, the uh, Catherine was asking the maid about the um woodcutter and she was like i don't know the woodcutter isn't under my supervision he's like the butler manages them or something like that and i was like "Mm, okay that's a thing continuity also yeah it's a hundred percent a thing yeah no i mean that's real i only mentioned that because i feel like you you like when things are more accurate i do (laughs) so the drunk crowd basically is like let's go pay a visit to the woodcutter and his new bride I'll give a content warning here for a second. I see where this is going. Mm. So if you are sensitive to rape scenes, skip ahead just like 20 seconds. It's not long. Basically, they go there and Henry is like, I want to have sex with your new bride. And the woodcutter is like, no. And he's like, I'm the lord of this land. I get to. And the woodcutter is like, those times have long passed, sir. We have, we, that's not a thing anymore. But I guess it was a thing at some point in that seems about right for history. So then Henry has all of his friends like hold the woodcutter in place and watch him while Henry rapes the wife. It is a very ungraphic sex scene. It lasts like 15 seconds and you see almost nothing. Probably because just the times of the movie, they didn't want to show that, which is whatever. Then the woodcutter and the girl try to attack Sir Henry with knives and the woodcutter has an axe. But the crowd stops him, and for trying to attack him, Sir Henry drags the woodcutter out of the little cottage and chops his hand off. Oh, okay. Here's where the hand's coming in. Mm-hmm. So then the woodcutter curses Sir Henry, saying that the next virgin bride that comes into Fengriffin will be violated, and his revenge will be will be like taken. He kind of implies that like she's gonna end up getting pregnant. And that anyone who tries to stop this child from being born will, um, I think he says, like, death will befall them. And so it's weird because I think what I think we learned that the night that like the wedding night that Catherine was attacked with the hand, I actually think she was raped by the ghost, even though they don't say it at the time. And then that's why she gets pregnant. 
Oh, boy. So, Catherine overhears this story. She then goes upstairs, grabs a knife, rubs her big pregnant belly, and attempts to stab herself in the belly with the knife to kill the child. Oh, no. When she looks down after stabbing herself, the severed hand had appeared in front of her belly, and the knife stabbed the hand and could not go through the hand into her stomach because it was protecting the child. So now she's a little freaked out because she's having ghost baby. This got dark. (laughs) Yes. So then she demands to see the baby first before Charles does after it's birthed because she's worried about it. And the whole time she's giving birth, she's looking out the window and the ghost with the gouged out eyes is literally staring through the window at her. So it's like not a relaxing environment. (laughs) So the doctor gives her some laudanum and she gets completely knocked out. Sounds historically accurate. (laughs) Yeah, just take some laudanum. Just do some opium. All right. So ultimately, she has the kid. It's a boy. Charles comes in, looks into the crib, gets real upset. And at first, I'm just like, God, baby can't be that ugly, right? But then he like runs out of the house because he's like so upset at the sight of this baby. Is the baby missing a hand? We'll get to that in a second because it's the last scene as we get to see the baby. So he runs out to the woodcutters. Okay. So the the woodcutter now, by the way, the woodcutter looks exactly like the woodcutter from the history, but they say that it's like his son or his grandson or something. But anyways, so he runs out to that cottage, pulls out a gun and shoots the woodcutter. Then the woodcutter falls down. And then the woodcutter is like, has gouged out eyes and looks like the ghost or something. I just wasn't 100% on it. It was kind of weird. Then he goes super crazy, goes into the little cemetery, starts breaking the tomb of sir henry grabs sir henry's skeleton out of the tomb and starts smashing it against the concrete blocks what the fuck yeah the psychiatrist witnesses this and is like i'm gonna go back to the house so he does so then he goes upstairs and Catherine is like i want to see the baby and so the psychiatrist like gives her the baby and the bait so what does the baby look like why did it freak out Charles so much. Well, the baby has the same birthmark on his face that the woodcutter had, a very noticeable one, and is missing a hand. Bum, bum, bum. Jesus. And then Catherine basically just does this, like, stare off into the distance look. At first, it seems like she's, like, not super into it, and then it kind of looks like, literally, like, you see on the face of her that, like, her entire mind just shatters in that moment, and she stares off. And that's basically the end. The The actress who plays Catherine is so good at the, like, facial expressions. It was, like, one of the best things in this movie. And so, like, having her expression be kind of the end of this movie was great. Anyways, that's that. So, quickly, final thoughts on this movie. I feel like the story I've told makes it sound like it's a very normal kind of cohesive gothic horror. And I can see this being a book. And I can actually see this being way better of a book. Because part of the problem is that the... Some of it is, like, really long and disjointed. Like, you don't understand why some of it's happening. And I feel like it's probably explained better in a book. But that being said, the acting is all quite good from everybody. Yeah. And the horror elements are actually, like, more than I expected from, to be honest, a typical gothic horror of this time period. Usually it's a little more, like, nuanced and, like, um, like when you did Turning of the Screw. Like, usually it's a little less, like, in your face, like, severed hands and shit. Yeah. So I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised by that. All in all, I don't think it's, like, the best thing I've ever seen, but it's kind of good. And, like, the costuming is good. The It's something that, like, you may not be able to sit down and, like, 
have a drink and hee haw to or anything like that. But I think that it it's enjoyable. If you like if you like movies from the seventies, I think you'll like this. So, oh, there's also a lot of really great scream moments. Like the some of the women in it do literal like scream queen screams, and it's like really good. And sometimes I just like watching these period pieces because everyone's all like proper and like ladylike, and I'm like. I should be more ladylike. And then I'm like, no, fuck that. Anyways, so that's, and now the screaming starts. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches, this week is super exciting to talk about. I'm going to tell you all about The Hunger by Alma Katsu, who you and our gentle listeners might remember as the author of The Deep, which, side note, I can't remember if I brought this up on the podcast or not, but Alma Katsu actually liked our picture for the deep on Instagram and I was gagged. I get really, really into authors and stuff. And basically any acknowledgement from the author of a book I loved makes like my entire week. That's true. I was actually pretty excited about it too. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, back to the hunger. This is also an exciting week for me because this was recommended to me by one of our most active listeners. I don't know their actual name, but their Instagram is an account. So We've just been calling them Anne. Anne, if that's your name and you're okay with us calling you that, we absolutely love how actively you comment. It makes our day. Uh, anyway, when Anne saw that I was reading The Deep, they commented that I should give The Hunger a shot, and I am certainly glad that I did. The Hunger sounds right up your alley. So, the cover, which was designed by Stephen Breda, features a covered wagon on an open plain. And it's really subtle in a cool way because the only nod to horror is the fact that the covered wagon has a blood splatter on the canvas. Oh, that's what that is. It's very Oregon Trail. Well, it's the Oki Smoky days. I do. The Oki Smoky days are some of my favorite days. Well, let's take a look at the blurb. Except for all the dysentery. Okay. Blurb. Blurb. The blurb that will pretty quickly tell you... Why it's called the hunger. Evil is invisible and it's everywhere. That's the only way to explain the series of events that have plagued the wagon train known as the Donner Party. The Donner Party? Yes, the Donner Party. Okay. Do you know what the Donner Party is? No. Uh oh. Your eyes lit up. Do you want to tell me what it is after the blurb or right now? Yes, I'll tell you after the blurb. Okay, <laughs> let me finish. Um, whew, I might read this a lot faster now. Depleted rations, bitter quarrels, and the mysterious death of a little boy have driven the isolated travelers to the brink of madness. They cannot seem to escape tragedy or the feeling that someone or something is stalking them. Whether it's a curse from the beautiful Tamsin Donner, who some think might be a witch, their ill-advised choice of route through uncharted terrain, or just plain bad luck, the 90 men, women, and children of the Donner Party are heading into one of the deadliest and most disastrous Western adventures in American history. As members of the group begin to disappear, the survivors start to wonder if there really is something disturbing and hungry waiting for them in the mountains, and whether the evil that has unfolded around them may, in fact, have been growing within them all along. So, obviously, from the blurb and the covered wagon, we are dealing with the Donner Party in this episode, and I do love it when we traipse back into the Oaky Smoky days. I feel like everyone, apparently except for Max, knows about the Donner Party to some extent. It's a group of prospectors, they're going out to California, they run out of supplies, and so they have to eat each other. 
like you do. This is a real story. Yeah. Hmm. And actually, I was reading this at work, and my coworker who grew up in California, like right near the pass that the Donner Party went through to get there, she was like, yeah, growing up there, like we learned about it a lot, like a lot in school. And so I talked to her some about it. And there's a lot of historical references in the book that I did not get because I did not learn a lot about it in school. Hmm. But it's really cool. Interesting. So it's another like, because her last one was about the Titanic. Yes. So she's doing like more historical horror. Yeah. But her newest book is like a CIA thriller. Right. Because she used to work for the CIA or something like that. Yeah. She used to work for the CIA. Oh, she's so cool. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, so cool. Also, I just like her books. Anyway. um, Oh, also, side note. I read somewhere a long time ago from someone who had to eat human flesh that the lower back is the tastiest. So like in like a personal text message or no, no, it wasn't an article. Just checking. Do you have some standards? Not many, but some. Cannibalism is really bad for you. Don't do it. Yeah, no, don't do it. Also illegal. Very. Anyway, much like the deep, the hunger has a lot of historical figures in it. The creep factor is also heavily rooted in the setting, but Unlike The Deep, however, there is plenty of horror to go around that is just vague enough not to give anything away. So I'm actually able to talk about horror without spoilers this time. Because <laughs> I still feel really bad about the episode for The Deep because that book was so good. But I had to be like, I don't want to give spoilers and it's a creepy atmosphere. It's like, no, the book itself was like really good. Anyway, so... We have a simple prologue where a search party is looking for the survivors, but they find a bunch of human bones around a cluster of like cabins and shacks. And then the door starts to open. And then we cut to our main story, which I know you love when books or movies start at the end and then jump back. Yeah, I hate it. It's your absolute favorite. Anyway, we jump back to a man named Charles Stanton. He's shaving his beard when his buddy Edwin Bryant comes up and says, a wicked man hides behind a beard, like Lucifer. I mention this for two reasons. One, they're both important characters, so this lets me introduce the two of them. Two, I feel very attacked. (laughs) Interestingly enough, too, there have been psychological studies about people's perceptions of people with beards. It may have changed now for modern times, but when I was learning a lot, or I was doing like a lot of training on like voir dire and the psychology of juries. They basically said that it has been shown that people inherently find bearded men less trustworthy than clean shaven men. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a beard because without one, I look like I'm a teenager with a very round face. <laughs> so I fake a jawline with my beard. I'm just- To be honest, I don't know if I've ever seen you without a beard. Like, without at least stubble. The first time I dressed as Pearl from Steven Universe, when I did it for um, the Halloween program at the library. Were you clean-shaven? Yes, I I was. Uh, The picture is awful. It's so bad. I don't know that you've seen me clean-shaven either. Uh, Once. I mean, in a picture, maybe. No, you did once. You did once. It was very similar to... um, Shit's Creek when Mutt shaves his beard and Alexis is like, I just don't think this is the right journey for you right now. Except I didn't say that out loud at the time because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And I want you to do what makes you feel good about yourself. I just really hope that a beard makes you feel good about yourself. Anyway, 
while they're talking, George Donner, like of the Donner Party Donners, rides up on his horse and is like, hey, a kid's missing. Well, they find him miles ahead of the wagon train. His head is intact, but his body is completely stripped of flesh. Hmm. Just bones with a head. So we're starting off strong. We find out that one of the Donner daughters, Aletha, E-L-I-T-H-A, sounds fake, (laughs) A, hears dead people, and B, found a shed full of letters, and every single letter said, turn back or you all will die, which is really encouraging. Didn't slow anyone down. Well, at that point, how are you going to turn back? Aren't they like in the middle of like the Oregon Trail? Well, this was early on in their voyage across the country. They could have turned back. Mm. They could have turned back at that point. Other important characters, just because I will bring them up here and there, there is Mary Graves. She works for one of the families. She and Stanton fall for each other, but I am focusing on the horror here. There's also James Reed. He's a bit OCD, and people don't like hearing the truth from him. He's also very gay, so basically he's mean. Is he actually gay? Yes. I don't know if he was actually gay in real life, though. But Mm. his family was one of the... There were only two families where every family member survived, and James Reed's family was one of them. Mm. So he was real. I don't know if he was actually gay, but he's gay in the book. Mm. So as they're traveling along, Bryant decides that he's going to go ahead because he thinks that they're going too slowly. Uh, We don't really get a lot more from him except through a series of letters. What we do learn, though is that there is a tribe of indigenous people in the area who leave out sacrifices for a wolf spirit. And he also mentions rumors of men turning into beasts at night, as well as men going mad and becoming very prone to violence. So it's like a a grab bag of possibilities here. Sure. Uh, Fun little side note. The white characters in this story talk to, think about, and treat indigenous people in a way that is reflective of the time, But the author, in her acknowledgments in the back of the book, actually thanks a woman who she worked with to make sure that the actual portrayals of indigenous people is respectful and accurate. And that, she's gays and days, is how you do it. (laughs) So, I'm skimming through this book, both because page-wise and with regards to density, this one is a chonker compared to the other ones that I normally do for this podcast. There's a lot of plot. But a lot of it is not horror-related. It's very character-driven, so we're not going to talk about it. That said, much like how The Deep was very, like, gothic horror, but instead of in a mansion, it's on a ship, this was very, like, American gothic, like, grittiness and darkness. And I've never actually watched the show, but I've seen screen grabs from Carnival, and it has a very similar, like, feel. I love Carnival so much. I know that you do. That's why I bring it up. But I also have never seen a single episode. But I have seen screen grabs of it. And it has that, like, American Gothic. Yeah. Like, dusty, gritty kind of feel to it, too. Yeah. I mean, it's all, like, Dust Bowl, very sad, poverty-stricken times. Yeah. So, the main party, not counting Bryant. Again, he went ahead. And also some people who branched off to go up to Oregon and no longer factor in this story they arrive at this rundown camp of sorts. And that is when Miss Mary is attacked by a man who is incoherent, very violent, and visibly rotting. Yikes. In the face. 
He was apparently the lone survivor of a prospecting group. But shortly after this, an indigenous man who goes by Thomas because white people stripped him of his name and culture at a young age runs into the camp and he'd been escorting Bryant and ended up fleeing. And he's like, the way ahead is super cursed. You shouldn't go. But the white people, by virtue of their skin tone, decide that they know better and keep on keeping on. Mm, Sounds about right. So their plan is to go through a shortcut called Hastings Cutoff. But a note from Hastings himself says to turn back. Wolf-like creatures chased them, and a little girl was taken and killed, much in the same way that the boy from the Donner Party was. So, maybe we should avoid that. But, the white people, by virtue of their skin tone, decide that they know better, and they keep on keeping on. It's classic horror. So the party comes across a boy who had been sacrificed in the trees, and his body is stripped to its skeleton. And a man named Halloran, his dog, like, chews on the corpse a bit, turns aggressive, and then bites one of the other men in the group, and then the dog is shot. Halloran is upset. A scuffle ensues. Halloran is gravely injured. Here's where we factor in a woman named Tamsin. Tamsin Donner. She is the extremely beautiful wife of George Donner. She's also banging Stanton because she does what she wants because she was forced into marriage and also because she's hot, so she gets away with everything. <laughs> Stanton describes her as like in all of his like beauty descriptions as having a waist so small that a man can wrap his hands around it. Thanks. So she's gays and days. Before we started recording, I measured Max's hands because Max has enormous hands. And the circumference of Max's hands when he holds them together as if he were stretching his fingers around someone's waist is 13 inches. The world record for the world's smallest waist is 15 inches. So inaccurate. What if she had the world's smallest waist back then and nobody ever measured it? Snatched. Maybe if you like really pressed in, he could make his little fingers touch. (laughs) It's all the witchcraft. It keeps her skinny. Anyway, she is like a healer of sorts. And so she helps, she nurses Halloran back to health. He also like recovers miraculously from tuberculosis during this entire process. And he's extremely healthy. And Tamsin's like, I'm good, but I'm not that good. So this is a little weird. (laughs) And then he starts to turn really aggressive. And so one night Tamsin is in the reeds along a river and he shows up and he's like, Oh, I'm super sick. Please come help me. And so she gets close, and then he tries to attack her. And when he does so, his face transforms into something, quote, inhuman and narrow. And it's dark out, so Tamsin can't really see. So we don't really know if this is actually happening or if she's just kind of going crazy. But she gets his knife away from him and cuts his throat. Oh, good for her. So she survives. She's a survivor. Yeah, good also, for her super like character related spoiler not plot related spoiler so if you don't want to hear it skip ahead 15 seconds she also hates her husband and sleeps around because she's trying to fill the void left by her brother like her brother brother this is my fight song you are holding on to that long enough that you got through the incest (laughs) i mean incest doesn't faze me oh boy um so a bunch of other stuff happens. Aletha tries to drown herself at one point because of the voices of the dead people, which now includes Halloran because he died. 
talking about how tasty Tamsin looked. Yikes. And she's she's like, well, that's kind of my stepmom. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to put some rocks in my pocket and take a little stroll. I don't think anybody should really talk about how tasty anyone looks. Nope. I mean, not in a serious way. And definitely not in the context of, I want to consume that person's flesh. It's like that person's, you know, like, ooh, they're delicious. Like, ooh, they're so sexy. Like, that's one thing. But to be like, mmm, I bet her flesh tasted so sweet. Like, that's different. (laughs) That's different. And even if you are using that as a metaphor, that is heavy-handed and stop. Anyway, Thomas saves her, and he's telling her about spirits that wear many skins, which is a myth akin to werewolf myths. So they make it out of the mountains and into a desert. And then, I'm just skipping most of the desert part, as they're entering the basin, they see charred bodies. And Thomas is like, they're dead. The charring is to protect them from the hungry ones. This is where the hungry ones live. We shouldn't go here. And the white people, by virtue of their skin tone, decide that they know better and keep on keeping on. Shortly after, Tamsin and her kids are attacked by men who seem feral and to have lost their minds. She escapes by starting a fire, but no one actually sees the creatures, so they don't really believe her, and they also think that she's a witch, so... And she's a woman. They all used to be making up stuff. Especially the pretty ones. (laughs) Yeah. So tensions grow high, and the man that Reed has been sleeping with behind his beard wife's back decides that he's going to tell. And this dude was really toxic anyway. He was super aggressive, but Reed really, really liked thinking about his hands around his throat, which, girl, same, but who hasn't gotten a little thrill by the super aggressive asshole who just like shoves you away the second he's done? Anyway, rather than be outed, Reed kills him. Yeah, well. The lesson here, kids, is don't be an asshole and out people. Snitches get stitches. Yeah, outing people's, it's not a good quality. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, Reed stands trial and ends up being exiled. Yikes. That's how he survives, though. So. <laughs> you find on the epilogue, this isn't like super, like super plot related. Uh, you find on the epilogue that Reed is leading the search party. Oh, okay. Like, he made it through all the way to where they were going in California and brings people back to look for mm-hmm. any survivors. So, shortly after that, as tensions run higher and higher and supplies run lower because Reed was the OCD glue holding everyone together, a man's daughter is missing, and he assumes that Tamsin has something to do with it. See above which comment. So he attacks her, but then George Donner kills him, and then the Donners are exiled as well. Everyone gets an exile. (laughs) You're exiled, you're exiled, you're exiled. I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping things up. I'm going to tell you how the Donner party is doing and how the main party is doing, and then leave it in suspense for our gentle listeners, because this actually only came out a couple years ago. Like, she pumped out the deep real soon afterwards. So Hmm. that was me snapping in the background in case Max can't edit that out. Sorry, y'all. I'm, I am incapable of talking without moving. It's a problem. So where I'm leaving the actual Donner family, George has broken his hand trying to fix a wheel and he's dying. It was like crushed 
so I'm there's like infection and whatnot. And the creatures that have been plaguing the group the entire time have surrounded the Donner camp. And Tamsin's trying to keep them at bay with fire, but that can only work for so long because she's running out of things to burn. So that's where you are with the Donners. Meanwhile, back at the main group, one of the cows was attacked and slashed by one of the creatures overnight. Does the group think, hmm, we've been stalked by cursed things for a while now. Maybe we shouldn't eat this cow. No. The white people, by virtue of their skin tone, (laughs) decide that they know better and keep on keeping on. And a majority of the group eats the cow, and then everyone who does starts to lose their minds. And that's where I'm going to leave y'all. With Hmm. double cliffhangers. Seriously, though, this book was really good. And it's easily Almakatsu's most popular one. So I just recommend that you go and read it. It was a lot of fun. I'm going to give it five out of five blood spattered covered wagons. It's got the horror. It's got the atmosphere. It's got lots of character driven drama. If like me, that's also your jam. And honestly, it was just a lot of fun to read. So that's The Hunger by Almakatsu. It sounds good. It sounds much more horrific than The Deep. Yes. Yes. It has all of the gothic elements of The Deep that I really liked, but that I think for some people, they're like, mm, that's nice, but whatever. And then has the like in your face, like zombie werewolf, basically like Wendigo things mm-hmm. attacking you at the same time. And it's like, it starts off slow where a lot of that happens like off page. You don't really see the creatures, but you see the creatures a lot towards the end. Like there's points where it's like night is falling and you're nervous because you don't know what's going to happen when the creatures attack that night. So it gets really good. It's so good. Hmm. No, that sounds good. Wendigo spirit myths are actually quite interesting and uh, very, what am I trying to say? Varying. There's yeah. lots of different ones of them. Yeah. Anyways, if you were in the hunger, would you die? Absolutely. <laughs> I am a delicate Fabergé egg of a man. And I would have died long before we even got to the part with the creatures. I just am not built for cross-country travel in a covered wagon. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, I'd die pretty pretty fast. Would you die in... And that's when the screaming starts? And now the screaming starts. And now the screaming starts. Whatever. Close enough. Would you die in it? You know, originally I was like, no, I don't think so. It's not really that kind of a movie. But everyone besides um, Charles, who tries to tell the legend ends up getting killed by the ghost so now i'm thinking maybe because if i knew that legend i don't i would be like Catherine, girl let me tell you what's happening right now you would not believe what used to happen here and then you'd be like and then and then then you die exactly now i'll get choked out by the ghost unfortunately so i probably would end up getting killed or fortunately hey ghost anything else we want to say no no you have said enough (laughs) thank you so much for listening everyone if you'd like to find us on social media you can find us on twitter and instagram and goodreads at second to die pod you can also email us questions comments concerns at second die pod at gmail.com or directly on instagram and remember if you can't be first you can always be second to die